Hello and welcome to Experience Our Ally at Work. Today I'm speaking with Zoa Burchik, who is a counsellor, psychotherapist and tertiary educator. Zoa founded and is the former director of the Australian Centre for Voice Dialogue. Today she works as a lecturer at the University of New England School of Health, where she is the course coordinator for the school's mental health program and teaches in the counselling and joint medical programs. Zoa has a wealth of experience in experiential learning and working with groups and has dedicated her practice to working with questions related to connectedness and what needs to be enabled for that to happen in group life. I look forward to working and speaking with Zoa today and understanding how experience has been her ally at work. Welcome Zoa, great to have you on the show today. How are you? Thanks Rebecca, I'm, I'm feeling quite good actually, after our initial chat. <laughs> Bit chilly where you are today? Um, no, uh, it's been very windy but warm wind, which is kind of nice, I like it, it's moody. <laughs> it's moody, yeah, it's a warm wind here today, so we've got that in common. So Zoa, as we begin, and has become a little bit of uh, my ritual, do you remember when we first met and did we learn anything? What were we, what was our first encounter? I would say, I would say that my first encounter was with you, was before I met you. And it was uh, through my partner. When I met my partner, we were having conversations um, and I, you know, I said I was a psychotherapist and a counsellor and she said oh oh um, we've done some group work uh, at work and I was quietly rolling my eyes over the phone thinking oh she's going to tell me about some tacky superficial thing um, and then she was telling me about her group process at work and I went wow, who is this person? Are they doing this kind of work in the corporate world? This changes everything. <laughs> um, so I was very looking forward to meeting you because of that. Um, just talking about like dream processes and things that I just did not uh, know that there's anyone out in the work world doing, doing your kind of work. So, um, And then I think um, perhaps the next time we spoke was, was uh, when I was talking to you about research ideas I think mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's my memory too and yeah, yeah you were talking about um, what aspect of your work you might want to do some further research in and it was all very well I found it very interesting yes um, yeah it was good good conversation yeah yeah so Zoa on that note do you want to just outline your world of work so what your busy doing? What, what's your work in the world? Okay, well, I, uh, I started off as a counsellor and psychotherapist. Well, started off in my adult life. I had a lot of different professions along the way, uh, trying to make ends meet until I found my niche and uh, became a counsellor and, and um, worked with people, had a private practice, worked in a variety of contexts, and then somehow made my way into teaching a little bit uh, while, I while I was working with, the, with my counselling stuff I 
um, took an interest in an approach called voice dialogue and so followed through on that, went to the United States, trained with the founders of voice dialogue, Hal and Sidra Stone, and that was very eye-opening as an experience and came back and, yeah, since then I, I've worked in all sorts of contexts and now I'm... I'm, I'm uh, teaching as a university lecturer in uh, New South Wales. Okay. So um, I, I do want to hear about the, the work you're doing currently, but I'm also, before we go there, I'm really interested in understanding a little more about voice dialogue. So, so that, what is that in terms of um, human process? What, can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so voice dialogue is... It's a consciousness model uh, that is, I would say is interested in non-duality, but uh, to, to, to uh, essentially it assumes that we are um, that we're all made up of multiple parts, and uh, that each of those parts is real, and that we are all we we are each of these parts, and we are also the parts of us that do not. Um, get to see the light of day and we're also none of these parts so that can sound really complicated the way I say it but really it's um, you know if, if we're talking right now there's a part of you that might be really interested to understand so your mind part you know your mind might be uh, interacting with me in, in a particular way uh, there might be another part of you that's um, interested in emotionally connecting or in, in kind of connecting in a presence kind of way and there might be another part of you wondering what you're going to be doing for dinner or something. <laughs> oh, for breakfast sorry well actually well yeah yeah it would be breakfast what I was what, well that's interesting because in the moment I was I was off on my in my mind um thinking about the times that I've experienced the use of voice in work so I was wondering about the link so that would be my link in the moment. So, yeah. so you'd be so you'd be trying to work with the different parts that emerge. Yes. So individually, individually, I'd be working with different parts that emerge. And you know, I guess the one people are most aware of is the critical voice in their head, which offers commentary on everything we do. And you know, we, we see them all as protective, protective parts. But what I guess makes voice dialogue unique is this idea that. The, the the parts of us that are pushed away, they're pushed away for good reason, but there'll be something in them that um, that can uh, give us a better sense of wholeness if we get in touch with it. So mm-hmm. it's really about, it really brings an awareness of paying attention to where the opposite of things are and what information and energy will an opposite bring in. And that works wonderfully for groups and it works wonderfully for individuals so uh, if I'm um, you know in a very simple way like if I'm a very responsible person who uh, is very identified with responsibility I might have grown up a responsible person because the if it wasn't me no one was going to take care of things but if I become a prisoner to that part of myself I'll a attract opposites externally so if I suppress the part of me that is opposite to responsible I will interpret that opposite as um, I'll interpret that opposite as irresponsible rather than let's say easygoing or free-flowing and, mm. and, and I'll attract into my orbit people who'll compensate 
for the for the characteristic I've identified with. Mm-hmm. And so voice dialogue will not change the fact that I'm primarily a responsible person, but if it will give me like a homeopathic dose of access to to be to being able to be something other than just that. And and it yes. balances things out. Lovely. So that's on a that's on a kind of like superficial kind of way. But when so how a in of, a way how can the the, the, what does the carefree or the less responsible part of me have to offer if I allow myself to hear is how I've understood that. Yeah, but it's not just hearing it, it's experiencing it. So it's a process that takes you into the experience of that voice. It's a full okay. body experience. And so access to that opposite frees you up because you get a physical experience of what it feels like being something other than your idea of who you are. It's, so it's kind of frees you out from your egoic ideas of who you are and it mm-hmm. just opens more resources, opportunities, makes you less reactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, you know, of course, when things are really extreme or scary or whatever, we default to our own tried and true ways of being. So it's not like, by the way, now that I've done a lot of my own voice dialogue, I'm an enlightened being and I'm never thrown off. But um, but it's certainly some of the uh, to to facilitate to be a voice dialogue facilitator, you have to do your own work. And Gee, I imagine that, that that'll never tell you off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I work with humans, I have to do my own work. <laughs> exactly Um, but yeah but the beautiful thing with voice dialogue is that it kind of it it does this it's not about getting the parts to argue against each other or anything like that it's you you experience each and then you hold a center position in relation to the energies of both Mm -hmm. and it when you're able to work with opposite parts it opens something up and you at least for that moment in time you get to experience this kind of expansive very similar to what people talk about when they talk about connection to source or when they talk about um high meditative states it's this kind of sense of i'm everything and everything is me and i can see clearly i can see clearly and i have access to ways of being various ways of being it's very beautiful experience Mm -hmm. and people find it really useful too so how long does it take in your experience, when I say time, I'm, I'm thinking, is it something that people need to practice to integrate the different energies or what's your experience of, of working with people in that way? And yourself, I guess. I think, I think in early stages of voice dialogue, because we, you know, our primary selves, the, the beautiful thing with voice dialogue is it honours the parts of you that are in charge. It doesn't try to break past or you know, get past you to the to your shadow parts. It actually mm-hmm. works with the part in the driver's seat's permission. Mm-hmm. Um, gets a sense from that part of what matters to it. Separates you out from it to experience something other than it with its permission. Uh, it all sounds very. It all sounds very um, out there, but it, but it's really really simple. It it happens on you know you do it on the spot. It's immediate. I think in early sessions, people have sometimes clusters of parts um, together in the driver's Mm -hmm. seat when you're doing the work and often a mind part trying to make sense of, uh, does this feel real? Am I acting? Is this what's Mm -hmm. going on here? Uh, But once people get comfortable with the process, it's pretty pretty immediate. Um, Mm -hmm. And every session brings its um, gifts. Maybe after you start doing it for some time, if you do it regularly, you can access more disowned stuff, more shadow stuff. So, uh, for example, 
uh, I went to deliver training in Malaysia on voice dialogue. So, and mm-hmm. before I was go- and I and I trained up a colleague of mine to come to deliver this training with me. And so we were practicing on each other. And there was a point where I, I had a lot of anxiety about going. And, and so I tried to do some facil- I got her to facilitate me around the anxiety I had around going. So the first part that came out was, you know, a part that's really anxious about getting it wrong and all this. And there was another part that was worried because we're also friends. We're not just colleagues. And, you know, it was a really young part that likes us playing together and didn't really want to, um, was afraid that that would get screwed up in some kind of way by us working together. And while I was having all these kind of, uh, kind of conflicts between these, these parts, there was, a, there was a voice that crossed my just a thought, just a quick thought that crossed my mind of like, for God's sake. So I said, I just had a for, for God's sake, let's talk to for God's sake. So we went into this for God's sake part and this really masculine Aussie bloke, truck driver kind of. <laughs> G'day mate, how he's going? It was very like, oh for God's <laughs> sake, you know. And I was, it was so foreign to my way of being. It was so just, dis- because all the, because what all those parts had in common, they also, they were opposite to each other, but they also collectively had an opposite. And the opposite they had collectively was that they were all very sensitive in some way. And he was just crudeness. And so when I spoke from the perspective in my psyche um, that accesses something that's crude, it, it'll draw on things that are not, I think it draws on things from the collective because it's not necessarily directly in my experience. So it comes in very, very strong and it's kind of a little bit shocking. And, and, you know, my, my colleague, she, she was, she grew up in a Christian, religious Christian family. And after she went, Oh, this is devil's work (laughs) because it was so, (laughs) she got such a fright and she's like completely not religious anymore, but that came out in her because it looked like I was channeling this, masculine crude guy now it's not like oh now I'm more in touch with my inner truck driver it's not that it no. what happens is when you experience that crudeness in your body where it kind of it, it like takes a vacuum seal of only knowing this way of being that's sensitive to everybody's needs and it just freed something up so then I was able to go to Malaysia and hold my own because there's a part of me that wasn't so sensitive to everything yeah that I had access to and I had access to it through the truck driver even though the truck driver isn't like someone I carry around within my cast of parts if that makes sense yeah it's, yeah it's, yeah it's so bizarre when you hear about it but it it's I, yeah. I'm understanding I'm with you I think that the the energy the perspective um the essence of the the truck driver you were able to use as a resource. It's not yeah. who you are, it's a part in the field that you could access. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's an it's almost like an archetypal thing. It's when you don't when you're off balance in some kind of way, it's when you do voice dialogue and you're off balance in some kind of way, it can either draw on something in yourself that's been suppressed, or if it is underdeveloped in you, it will draw it from the field. And when it draws it from the field, it comes in in the most stereotypical way. But just something in your whole system frees up. You walk differently after. It's really powerful. I understand. No, I, I understand. And um, that leads me. So why did you get into voice dialogue specifically? What part of your um, history was attracted to that, Zoa? I think that's... I mean, I grew up with opposites all the time. I grew up, I'm dyslexic, and I grew up in an environment where I had a very left-of-centre mother. 
she's an artist and uh, very, very alternative in a million different ways. And then I had a uh, father, I still have a father, who very entrepreneurial, salesy, just wants to make just wants to make his fortune. He's also dyslexic, so I think that was his um, grind with society is to, to prove that he's going to be successful. And, and then I got sent to a conservative school and in the conservative school, they constantly explain to my mother also that there's something wrong with me and that I'm a little bit um, not, not quite quiet or underdeveloped. Or, and my mother just would have none of it. She said, no, Zaha has conversations with my friends and they're talking on the same level. There's no way that she's um, well done, slow, well. wow. um, which was really, really helpful. Yes. But it also, um, the other side of that is that there was a big mismatch between what she was reflecting to me about myself and what I was getting reflected back from my environment. And so it was like, well, who do I believe? Who do I believe? Which mm-hmm. is the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I think, first of all, that really helped me with what later became very helpful for my group work is kind of recognizing bodily felt sense and kind of feeling into your own experience and seeing where everything fits in relation to your own experience, which has been very powerful. And voice dialogue complements that because it holds the tension of opposites and it allows opposites to coexist as part Mm -hmm. of a full picture. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always looking for what's the other, what's missing from this picture that's going to help complete the picture. And, and, and that, that together with feeling into, feeling into my bodily experience helps me navigate the world. And today it's what I teach. That's what made me a good therapist because it was like I was feeling all sorts of stuff, but I didn't know how to make sense of it. Now I kind of go, well, my intuition doesn't come from nowhere. It's, it's something you could even teach other people. It's, you know, if you're paying attention to the physicality of what's happening in your body in the moment, you, you suddenly get all this other information of what's going on. You get information about what's going on in yourself in relation to somebody. You get information about what's coming at you from the other person. You get all this other information that wouldn't otherwise be available. So learning to, you know, that's how I learned about boundaries and differentiating myself from other people, which wasn't highly developed in my upbringing. Through, through that, it was really eye-opening in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And voice dialogue just kind of really complemented that because it also allowed for different perspectives on things and it, it it's, it's kind of to me in some way it's it's a tool that's the opposite of dogma well it doesn't pathologize either by the sound mm. of it it's not saying no it doesn't it's it's very much an ethos of of voice dialogue is to not pathologize yeah it doesn't even call itself a therapy i mean i published a research on it and and um it, and my uh, co-author added the word therapy, voice dialogue therapy, so we could get it published where we wanted to get it published, um, mm-hmm. which was in the end in the Journal of uh, Transpersonal Psychology. But oh, well um, <laughs> but uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Uh, they don't call it a therapy. They call it a consciousness model, and it's very much uh, this assumption that all your parts. If, if they're in charge, they're in charge because they developed to protect you sure, sure. Uh, and, or to, to keep you loved. And if they're in the driver's seat, it's because out of everyone available to your system, they're the ones who have gotten the job done. So they need to be respected, you know, yeah. not pathologised. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and if they're hanging on too tightly, if they're hanging on too tightly, then they hang on too tightly for good reason. So have a listen to what their concerns are and 
then they'll work with you on on opening up other ways of being. And if I link with you, Zoe, the very I have a very very similar ethos working with people in organize the world of organisations, in that you know those I would use default roles or um, ways of working serve us have served us and serve us but if it's the only way like if we only have one way of working with conflict or our peers or what have you it may not give us the scope that would allow other pieces so I completely I guess agree and understand with what you, you know what you're saying because I see that happen that whole well that's why I got so excited when I heard about you <laughs> everything yeah. I've heard about you before yeah. we met yeah. um, has been yeah. like oh my god I haven't been taught this stuff in one place and then he's other person doing this work with people so yeah uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Definitely. yeah yeah because it's it's um you know those those patterns or those uh, ways of being and what have served us like how have they been helpful that's always my question. So that's great for the personality, personal side of things. But what I'm kind of discovering through the group work stuff, um, increasingly so, is how how if you can hold the opposites within a within a group, something really powerful opens up. And, and well, it's that that's really. Um, of interest to me now well i would go further because if if we think about a human system and the purpose of it um our need to be fluid is often called forth so other parts the system needs us to be able to find Um, we can't just be in our person view if you will we have to be able to also be open to what the organisation or the human system or the group, which is a good segue, may need. So tell me about tell me about the group work and and where where this wonderful work's taking you, Zoa. What have you been doing? Well, I've been I've been teaching group work for some time now, uh, probably close to ten years already. But um, I've just moved when I moved to the university that that I'm at right now. Uh, I was asked if I would write. Uh, rewrite the group work uh, curriculum because they've had trouble with it in the past. Really took a deep dive and went completely with restructuring it, not according to any curriculum I've read, but really staying with uh, staying with what I've learnt over the time that I've been working and then drawing in all the literature to, to bring it together. And it was a very uh, rewarding experience to write such a rich uh, rich curriculum but then, you know, we have an intensive, because it's an online, um, the course is being taught online, and we have this intensive where we have to come offer the students an immersive group experience. And so, and we just completed that like last week. And I, I had like 105 students in my group. And then oh, is that all? Nine, <laughs> and nine, nine facilitators, so oh, well, nine including, including myself. So yeah. planning it together. But, but the thing was, I, I, what I did was rather than, like I had, to, I had to consciously choose to be vulnerable in this context because I've just put my heart and soul on the line, written a curriculum like literally from my guts, and then... And then now I'm inviting people I respect who I've uh, seen their names around or I've learnt from or have been the previous generations in, you know, that, that I brought together really good, 
good facilitators who teach other facilitators and I haven't met, uh, you know I've, that I've met at conferences and stuff like that mm-hmm. and here I am here read my curriculum <laughs> yeah. so yeah. so so it's kind of having to choose to be vulnerable around that and also hold space for them and create an environment that holds space online which was an interesting challenge because yeah. it hadn't been taught online um, at, at this university and it was just like there was so much for me around um just not letting my whole sense of self ride on any of this, but just start to focus that I want to really teach something that's going to going to give them something that that stays with them as an, as a meaningful experience. So the students will then, if they one day facilitate groups, they'll have in their system they'll have had the experience of being in a in a place of contact, in a place of presence mm-hmm. and contact, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and. Mm-hmm knowing full well that at this stage, some of them, it will go completely over their head and they'll be very upset about it. But the few that will somehow those who, who get what they get out of it, I think it'll, it'll be very important uh, as a carry forward thing. Do you find though that sometimes people may not understand it until later? I think that's probably true. I mean, even my own process with this, I'm only understanding later. <laughs> I've been at conferences 10 years ago that I'm still thinking about <laughs> experiential conferences not paper chalk and talk yeah, 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 yeah. but it was yeah it was it was very powerful mm-hmm. it was very powerful because well the, the way I structured it was I mean the curriculum was there and and I gave them full access to the curriculum but I invited these facilitators in and I created a lot of structure around when you access things and where and, and, and really mapped it out and, and lots of supports and a handbook and all this stuff to make it very well structured in the holding of it. Yeah. And then on the inside, I said, you know, I brought you in because I trust you to, not, you know, I know your stuff. I know you know your stuff. So whatever that looks like for you, you know, go with it and, you, uh, and you'll be supported in it. And so I created kind of a framework in which they're allowed to work within their own congruence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just at no point did I buy into hiding behind self-importance as a way of dealing with being in a university environment that I think it's very easy to get into that fake it till you make it kind of let's all pretend to be really important. Uh, and I'm not saying that anyone does that. <laughs> I'm just saying I, I, I can understand that. That's what it can mobilise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can mobilise yeah. that because it's such a, it has a real airs and graces um, really? ethos to it that <laughs> so for me to come in and kind of go actually no I'm going to interact with every single student and every facilitator as genuinely and authentically as is available to me in that moment um, and, and and be vulnerable but also you know hold hold my boundaries and hold my what needs to be held and it was just amazing the ripple effect of it. Like the, the facilitators were all going, we've never been in an environment. And these are people that, are, that have been doing this for a really long time. We've never been in an environment where um, the organisations that, that the per- we've been treated so genuinely and held so well. And so there's a lot of feedback from that. And then they passed it on. And there was this kind of sense of generosity with like, I was, I was, just open-hearted with them and then they passed that on to the students and so mm-hmm. 105 students and nine facilitators and everyone's open-hearted you should have seen us on the on the last day when we all got back together to the big group we all looked like we'd been through some kind of spiritual journey in the desert or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah, everyone yeah. was in this kind of meditative conversation 
And I had them all write on the whiteboard, like how they're feeling at the start and at the end. And at the end, there were some people that were saying, you know, relieved and hungry and things like that. But then it was just so covered with heart and gratitude. And it's very powerful experience that I'm still making sense of. What was that? Was that part of a broader program of with student, like, or was it? it a, is it a specific group program that people sign up for in the university? No, uh, people. It, it's it's um, there's a bachelor's through to master's uh, students that are doing various degrees. So, there's social work, counselling, uh, mental health some people in education and yeah it's it's a kind of cross-discipline cross-discipline unit Mm -hmm. Um, but it was just it was an interesting learning for me because I'm always on this kind of cusp between being an outsider and trying to and and very caught up in the degree to which I'm perceived as don't do things the way we do things around here sort of thing and when I don't buy into that the power it has to influence, the power it has to make meaningful change. And, you know, and, you know, for me, uh, um, yeah, I, I really, at the end of our uh, intensive, I, we, we all had to draw something. And um, I think I've told you about this one before, but we all had to in, in draw something. And I, while we were listening to music, because I was a participant in my own group in one of our participants sure, sure. running an yeah. activity. And there's this, we, you know, I drew this tree and um, the, the trunk was, was much, much, much broader than what I thought I was drawing initially. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't see the roots and you couldn't see the, the, the top of the tree. And it, it kind of really, I looked at it and I thought, well, this is, this is right. It's like the place where you have the most influence is the place where you're not worried about influence at all. It's like, it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of, that sense of, you know, like I was very much raised with a, with a mother who, put on to me that I have to save the world and it's a very big thing to have to carry and I spent a lot of time rejecting anything that that's unfair for parents to put onto their children and all sorts of things and suddenly I was going oh my god I you know here I am at the at this process that I facilitated by being open-hearted and taking that risk and getting knocked and embarrassed and awkward and all the things that happened along the way there and suddenly something emerges here that is powerful and staying with them for life, staying with them for life. And the, and the influence of that is massive. There's such a ripple effect. And, but it kind of, in that moment, it's no longer about you. And well, my and association is a tree is planted hmm. and it dies if it's taken out of the soil. And, and my association is um, it doesn't get to choose whether it's an insider or an outsider. It just is. Yeah, but I don't even think I was the tree. I just think that we're all the tree. Somehow the tree just grew because we gave it the right conditions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, and this is the beautiful thing with opposites that that I learned from voice dialogue. It's like anything you get caught up in, well, there's a tension with its opposite that can free something up for you. And that kind yeah. of, those opposites of having influence or making a difference to other people and all those things versus it not being about you, like letting go of the ego stuff. It there's a tension there that it that kind of it's very kind of yin yang. You know, it is. It is. Because you red and green. Yeah, I I understand. It's the you, if you're too attached, it can be all you know egoic 
you know, self-fulfilling yuck. Mm -hmm. I don't have a better word. Um, however, you still have to be engaged enough to discern and hear and listen to what's happening. It's a very, I, I somehow mm. understand. <laughs> they kind of, they tend to, they tend to kind of flip into each other. It's like this sense they of do. my, my ego felt, felt most complimented and felt most affirmed when it wasn't about my ego at all. <laughs> I understand. And then you can very easily lean into lean yeah. into the self-congratulatory nature of it or the service nature of it. And or know, the critic. We also like all the critic for oh, we could that. do yeah. better next year. We get 150 <laughs> students and we have 10 facilitators and I'll have better boundaries set up. Yeah, yeah. It's we're we're strange humans. So just on that, so you had 109 participants, sounds fantastic, in this online world and across different disciplines. I'm quite interested in what you're seeing in terms of the context. So what's happening in group process that you're seeing is being influenced by the context we're living in. What, what, what's been happening in that space? I'm still in the middle of processing that actually. Some of what's seen to be emerging is a tension between young and old. Mm -hmm. in lots of different ways and that was manifesting um that was manifesting in our various groups in various ways um and it was uh manifesting in the tension between you know like, i i i brought in a lot of these new facilitators but i also brought in the facilitators that were running it in previous years and i think there was tension around it being done in a different way just for a little while um, and so there, there was this constant tension between how we've always done things and new that's emerging. So that was really strongly there. And how do you honour what was there before and still be of service in a way that is relevant? Mm -hmm. and so, so that was coming up in this group process. And so we were looking at that later. The facilitators were having a conversation about that and how that's, you know, there's there's something systemic there that's, bigger than us as well um, now I was even thinking about you know the well even that, that that kind of tension was was also well who is the young and who is the old and and you know the, the university being on aboriginal grounds and and that that um tension and then just you know the world right now <laughs> the world right now is like I was I was having at some point this gushing emotion around uh, you know, there were some some younger people in my group even who I more or less got them on board, but I, I'm very aware and I've been aware of this at least in the last five years that there's this kind of shift where within a certain or beneath a certain age group, they, the uh, people don't seem to have the same ability to be present intimately and to connect in, in presence in the moment without it being completely overwhelming and causing distress. So mm -hmm. what used to be something that I would position as maybe I used to like, you know, you, you, when you're working with a group and I mean, Rebecca, you know, better than me. And I guess our, um, <laughs> well, I guess, I guess our, our uh, contexts in which we facilitate groups are slightly different because maybe you're in contexts where there's more, more challenging and I'm in contexts where there might, it might be more on the therapeutic side. Um, so it's all, but so it's very much around creating enough safety for intimacy sure. 
but that is the task. Like it is. That's my how task. How can too. we? Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. So mm-hmm. so it's kind of that. What used to, but you always have to take people out of their comfort zone, but enough out of their comfort zone for them to to have a new experience, a fresh experience, but not so far out of their comfort zone that they're overwhelmed and shut down. Sure. And what used to be mildly out of some people's comfort zone and I could do it in my sleep without, you know, ironically, without being present. I could just do these things that would put, put people slightly out of their comfort zone and give them a really incredible experience. Suddenly I found myself about five years ago that that slight out of comfort zone, people completely meltdown, meltdown. Didn't mm-hmm. know what, you know, they were there to, I even in this intensive just now, I had I was getting phone calls on my lunch breaks from some of the younger students going, Zaha, we're all we're all in the, in our group talking about feelings. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? And and I said, Well, whatever it is your group's co-created, that's what you've co-created. It was genuinely innocently said. She had this receptiveness to what I was feeding back to her about that, that she's gonna but it strikes me the degree to which I don't know if it's They've not been taught it. If if children have been let down, children have been let down. They don't have the, they have not been given tools to know what to do with their emotional information. And uh, when you are present, emotional information comes through, and emotional information has a purpose. And if you block that out, you do not have access to what you need to know about your situation. So that to me was, it, it, it's heartbreaking that that's the case. And I, and I also, in part, I'm conscious, you know, that in part, I'm going, well, we haven't given them the tools um, in, for whatever reason, how, you know, there's been, there's been research saying that it's, uh, there's been research saying that it's the result of too much uh, social media, online time, not enough Tech, interpersonal yeah. mileage. And we're, and, and we don't, um, you know, we learn, we learn, connection through interaction with other people and we learn our own self-regulation through yes. interaction with other people so if we don't have enough interpersonal mileage you're getting 25 30 year olds who have the emotional um a, a maturity ability to self-regulate and all that stuff of a teenager so that's one aspect and there's another as- another aspect that's been talking about um about how they how uh, there's a helicopter parenting that you yeah, know there's a previous generation that let, let their kids, um, let their kids, uh, you know, they're all by Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so th- there's that. And then, and then I also think something else, you know, there's, you know, there's this whole, there's a lot of social criticism about a generation of people who are kind of narcissistic and self-absorbed and, you know, I, I just think, yeah, for sure, um, having to live from the outside in, like having a public profile from the day you're born doesn't yeah. help with that. Uh, but I also think that, I mean, the things that are typical of, of narcissism is that, uh, is that the incoming information, your, your ego and self, sense of self isn't strong enough to withstand incoming information about you. So there's an overcompensation um, the, the other way. And really, these kids were born into a world where they're told the environment is going to die in their lifetime, that the environment they're in is going to die in their lifetime. Like, how do you function in the world? with that kind of incoming information unless, you know, how do you have the confidence to, so I have a lot of compassion for them. And at the same time, I haven't found the tools to meet them where they need to be met in order to really help them 
with connection and presence. And for me, I think that's such an important thing right now. And I think maybe if they connect with themselves, they'll create revolutions. <laughs> I think the world, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that's the missing piece. They've got the, you know, when you underdevelop something, other things are overdeveloped and they have, uh, and I speak in huge generalizations, which obviously aren't. No, no, it's, I, you don't, I, I, it's great. And so you're, you're on the cusp in your world of work of really asking questions around, I've, I've done all this terrific work, like your own development working with group, you know, where you are now. How do I work with this generation? How do we work with this generation? Um, I think I think 10, 15 years from now, everything we're teaching now is so dated. It, uh, it's not yeah. dated. I mean, we're, we're, human connection isn't dated at all, but the tools we have to support, I don't even know what support's going to look like. I mean, they're really growing up into a very different world and... And yeah, so I, I'm a, the questions I'm asking of myself and of you know, <laughs> of the literature around me, I guess, and of the yeah. of people. I, I'm like I, I'm wondering it is how do we best how do we best uh, transfer to them what what we we can give them that they're not going to have if we don't, and then what how do they best how do we best meet them and what are like what are their needs really and how do we best meet them like 10 15 years from now what will counseling look like if exactly. will it even be counseling yeah like, is that i great question so you're on the intergenerational aspect of it also what mm. do we offer what do we leave behind so we're very mindful of your time <laughs> uh i yeah so i think it's probably a good time to close on that question so how do we work with these intergenerational challenges I'm glad you're in it, asking those questions on behalf of us. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and, um, and hearing about what you're doing in the world of work and particularly what you've learned from your own experience. Fabulous. Thanks very much for, for um, taking the time for a chat, uh, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.